the different figures that we meet in the course of studying the Christmas story, none may be quite so fascinating, I think, as this figure whom history has dubbed Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Now, that term, the Great, is a loaded one. And as we know from our own use of the term in present-day circumstances, it can be a somewhat ambiguous one as well. When you speak of going on a great date or attending a great banquet, it has all kinds of wonderful connotations, doesn't it? But when you speak of living through a great depression or a great war, it carries a whole nother set of associations also. When we use the term the great concerning Herod, it carries both of those meanings, as I'm going to describe for you. On one level, Herod was great in that happy sense, in that positive sense. He was an absolutely phenomenal figure in his time. In an era where kingships uh, came and went just about as fast as celebrity comes and goes in our time, Herod had a simply staggering run of influence and notoriety. By the time that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Herod had already been front-page news on the throne of Israel for some 40 years. Think about that. Think about the impact that we would have if we had a single president for 40 years. Either be very bad news or very good news or maybe a mixture. He was a master politician in an almost impossible district. Herod managed to keep the feisty Jewish people largely placated. And in order to do this, he launched a massive public works campaign which created jobs, improved local infrastructure, and got people active and proud of their nation. To the delight of the Jewish religious leaders, Herod also imposed a number of significant reforms that kept them very pleased. He upgraded the temple's facilities. He kept the Roman pagan idols out of the immediate precincts of the temple, which was a daring thing to do, but it kept the local religious leaders relatively pleased with Herod. In times of famine and economic duress, Herod had an, an almost impeccable sense of political timing. He would wait till things were just about at their bottom, just about at that point when people would lose co- total confidence in government and rise up in revolt, and then he'd sweep in with some kind of a massive feeding program or a welfare program of some kind, and it would settle people down again. At the same time, Herod was keeping the Jewish people uh, relatively content. He was a brilliant master at also managing the expectations and interests of Rome. Caesar, at this point in history, was in the habit of changing out governors the way retailers change out holiday decorations. He was always upgrading. He was always changing for the next season. And yet, Herod holds on to his throne for 40 years. He had a very shrewd knack for naming his building projects after Caesar or after one of his relatives. He had an incredible ability to to keep a steady stream of revenue flowing towards the uh, Roman beltway. He allowed enough freedom of, of expression that the local Jews could let off some steam, but he kept his thumb firmly enough upon the rabble-rousers within the populace that things never really got out of hand, never really threatened Rome's authority in Judea 
and never brought down the repression, the military repression that was being experienced by other provinces. Herod helped Judea cope with the Roman occupation effectively. I mean, that's just the long and short of it. He was enormously effective as a manager of his, of his nation. He was the Richard Daly of his, of his time, you know? It was, it was complicated, and he managed the complexities uh, in an incredible way. And as a result, he provided some measure of security and order in the lives of the Israelites. He maintained a certain level of prosperity, uh, especially for his devotees, and he did it for a very long time. Okay? This is why they called him Herod the Great. You see that? Now, there was another side, however, to this greatness. Uh, there was another kind of dimension to Herod's rule. He was also a progressively greedy man. He took more and more as time went on. He had a palace-building pallet like Saddam Hussein. Remember how the troops went in to Iraq and how they uncovered just massive, massive amounts of these luxury palaces? Well, Herod was not significantly different. And he built broadly and expensively. And still to this day, you can go to Israel and you can see the ruins of, of, uh, of the foundations of these massive edifices that he constructed for his own pleasure. Herod loved wine, women, and song to rampant excess. And to support this very lavish lifestyle he had, he crushed his people with taxes. And he demanded more and more of them over time in order to keep Rome satisfied and to keep his own appetite satisfied. He demanded more and more of people. Along with these appetites, Herod was absolutely paranoid about losing his power. In fact, ironically, the more power he had, the more jealous he was or anxious he was about holding on to it. Over the course of his reign, Herod murdered his own mother suspecting that maybe her allegiances were fading from him. He killed his, his wife, Alexandria. He murdered three out of four of his children. Uh, the one survivor was Herod Ant- Antipas, we call him. He goes on to become the Herod that Jesus tangles with as an adult. Okay? Herod was paranoically insecure about any possible threat to his throne. He brooked no rivals. He had to have absolute devotion or at least the appearance thereof. In fact, he had a standing executive order that at the time of his death, all of the leading citizens of Jerusalem were to be rounded up and slaughtered. Why? So that he would be absolutely certain that there would be wailing and mourning in the streets at the time of his death. This is the dark side of Herod the Great. Now you can see better, perhaps, the deeper currents that are running here beneath the story that we just read together, can't you? You can begin to sense what's going on here. When wise men, magi, come from the east, inquiring, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? What would you expect Herod's response to be? Well, it was characteristically ambiguous. On the one hand, Herod appears to be immediately devoted to advancing whatever is going to benefit Jewish religious aspirations. This is the long-promised Messiah. I'm all in. I'm very, I'm, you know how, how concerned I am about my Jewish voters. 
in effect, didn't have voters, but as Jewish citizens. And of course I'm interested in them. So he says, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. But on the other hand, Herod wants to know the exact time that the star had appeared and where the Christ was to be born. Why? Why is he so concerned about those particulars? Answer. He wants to fix the exact date and the exact location so can he, he can better, more efficiently focus the genocide he's about to unleash to wipe out anybody that might fall within that spectrum of time and location that could be his, his rival. And that is exactly what he does. He orders the slaughter of every child under the age of two born with this, within this particular period. The other side of Herod the Great. This is the bizarre confluence of greatness as Herod embodies it. He was an immensely creative magistrate and he was an incredibly cruel master. He was a seductively attractive developer of his nation and he was a strategically accurate destroyer of its best people. He wormed his way into your confidence by all that he promised to give you but then he destroyed your joy by all he finally took from you. Everyone hailed what Herod could create, but sooner everyone hated what Herod cost. Temporary help, terrible heartache came wherever Herod was king. Have you got this picture? Have you got this this duality in your head and your heart. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that this part of the Christmas story is so important for us to take in our hands because it is also, in a way, our story too. In many, many lives, Herod is still alive and well and sitting on the throne. I value what Craig Barnes, the senior pastor of the Shadyside Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, has to say on this subject. In every life, he writes, there's a Herod. In every life, there is a Herod. There is something or someone that has gained some power over you. You're seduced into calling it great because it does things for you. It does things for you. It helps you feel secure. It helps you cope. It's been around a long time. Herod, writes Barnes, is whatever it is that offers you something that you crave at a cost you can't afford. Something you absolutely desire at a price you can't afford. You love what it does. You hate what it costs. But as taxing as it is, You just keep paying. You just keep paying. The question for all of us then is, what is the Herod for us? What is the Herod in me? If Barnes is right, what exactly is the Herod in me? What have I given authority to? 
What have I given influence to in the hope that it will do for me something that I crave? What is that? Well, for some of us, maybe it's our career ambition. It's our career ambition. That's what has the throne. I'm going to get to the top. I'm going to have all of the success that getting to the top brings. I'm going to have all those benefits. And then more and more, the king exacts his price. After a while, we don't see the kids. We don't know the spouse. We have forgotten how to rest or to really play as we did as kids. Even play becomes ambition and work. We make choices over time that act like a deli slicer on the soul, just taking a little bit more off of the soul till there's so much left, less of it uh, than, than, than we had at the beginning. Uh, or maybe life's pressures are so great that we give up the throne to alcohol or to some other drug in our lives, some other stimulation. It helps us to cope. It provides a feeling of security or temporary well-being. And then it begins to demand more and more and more. And it takes more. And then it kills off the spirit and the relationships that are life itself. Maybe, maybe that's what's on the throne. For some of us, Herod is perhaps an old wound. It's a, it's a painful loss or injury that we suffered years ago, that we've crowned now with an immense kind of power in our life. With absolute authority, it now decrees what's possible. It is the thing which tells us what can happen and what will never happen. It is the thing that explains for us why it is not getting better or why it cannot possibly get better. That old pain now owns us. It sits on the throne. I know people for whom anger is the king. A terrible anger. They are angry at their spouse. They're angry at their parents or parent. They're angry at the people at work or they're angry at the people at school. Somebody did them wrong and they hate that person for what they did, what she did or what he did or what they did not do. And now we're spending a huge amount of our inner energy and personal time nodding and simmering around the throne of that anger. Your Herod may be the worldview of your political party. It could be the voice of your favorite pundit or preacher. Your Herod might be your nationalism. Your Herod could be even your religion or your hatred of religion. It could be your attitude toward the poor. It could be your attitude toward the rich. It's hard to escape the kingdom of the Herods because there are so many of them clamoring for a place on the throne. The Bible says that when King Herod heard the news that there might be another king, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Well, of course. Well, of course. The courts of all of these kinds of kings are paranoid places. You know that. You've experienced that. You ever try and leave a career culture workplace early? Claiming you've got concerns about your family or, or the balance in your life? What's the response of that 
court. You ever try to leave the circle of drinking buddies? Or the circle of the pain or rageaholics? There are entire classes and groups of people that affiliate entirely on the basis of shared pain or anger. You ever try and leave those circles? You know how hard that is? You ever try to express disagreement in the court of some political, cultural, or religious worldview? You try and raise questions. You try and say, hey, maybe it's more complicated than it's getting painted. You know what happens. People get disturbed. These courts are always watching for signs that you're not zealous enough for the cause. You're not holding enough to the party line. You're breaking ranks. Herod does not tolerate disloyalty. He brooks no rivals. You know what he does to them. So what's your Herod? He will be something or someone that at first seems to offer you plenty. He seems to give you security or validation. He helps you order your schedule or your viewpoint, your allegiance or your emotions. Giving him authority seems a logical, appropriate strategy at first to finding peace or a sense of place or prosperity. At the very least, Herod will tell you who to hate and with whom it's okay to hang out. But giving him the throne is ultimately so very costly. Because Herod doesn't care about you. He does not care about you. He cares about one thing, power. He cares about being in control. He does not care that by bowing to him, you will lose far more than you gain. Herod simply wants to be in charge. He wants the throne, even though giving it to him costs you that very health of heart, that very breadth of mind, that very depth of soul or strength of body that are the gifts for which you were born. It's what life is meant to be about. And that's why I come to you this morning, beloved, proclaiming very good news. That's why I come today with glad tidings of great joy that shall be for all people. This is why I come to you today to speak to any one of us who have been living for far too long in the kingdom of Herod. Here's the news. The true king, the only king worth giving our throne to is in the land now. That's the news of Christmas. The king has come. And though his hands once wielded the scepter that summoned this entire universe into being, this king does not come to us beating us with the scepter. This king comes to us as a child with open hands that reach out to take ours and invite us into relationship with him. Though he is the authority, he has all of the authority in heaven and on earth. He is the one before whom every knee will one day bow and before whom every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He comes to us now, not with demands, but offering us a free invitation to come to the great banquet. 
to enter into the life of his kingdom, to leave behind the kingdom of Herod and find life in a kingdom whose, whose power is not control, but whose power is love. Don't you want to live in that kingdom? Don't you want to be part of his kingdom? Wouldn't you rather have a king known for his curing than for his killing and controlling? The main thing required to enter into the kingdom of Jesus is honesty. The main thing that's required for us in entering into more deeply into that kingdom is honesty. First, I have to be willing to be honest about naming the Herod in my heart. Even if I discover as I really search the throne room that it's my butt that's on the throne. It's me. I'm the one that likes to be in charge. I'm the one that does not want to give up authority. I'm the one that wants nobody telling me what I can do or what I shouldn't do. I want to be Herod myself. I like the throne. And I get very disturbed when God or my spouse or my co-workers or anybody else tries to shove me off that throne. I, I guard it. I don't brook rivals easily. I have to be honest about the Herod in my heart. But secondly, I also need to be honest about the costs of serving under the management of that Herod. And there are costs to serving Herod. I ask you, does your life, does the life of this world evidence great leadership in those places where the love and the wisdom of Christ are not directing it? where the kind of, of, of authority that's being wielded in those places is not the kind of authority we see in Jesus. Does that place show evidence of great management? I need to be honest about naming the Herod in my heart. I need to be honest about the costs of serving under Herod. And finally, I have to be honest about inviting Jesus to take his rightful place. You know, I'm struck as I read this story again this Christmas how very easy it is to be like Herod in the story. I mean, I mean, really pay attention to the detail here. I mean, here is a guy. Here is a guy who talked a tremendously good game. Right? He talked a very good game about being interested in the birth of Christ about finding Jesus, about worshiping him. He talked a wonderfully good game. If there had been one, Herod would have probably gone to a Christmas Eve service, probably appeared very devout. Maybe he would have even gone the Sunday after Christmas Eve. I don't know. But he was very, very good at appearing devout. Herod had even the wise men fooled. Right? These guys were not idiots. These were the magi. These were the best and brightest of their cultures. And he had, he had them. Convinced. 
he was very interested in Jesus. But as we're going to explore further next week, there is a very, very important difference between simply handling Christmas, handling Christ, going through the motions of it. The difference between that and handing Jesus the throne. Big difference. Between managing Jesus and giving him the throne. Giving him not the back seat, not the side seat, not the holiday seat, not the consultant seat, but the throne of our lives. And it's hard to do. I mean, it, it, I don't think, that, I'm not sure the process is ever done, to be honest with you, of giving up the throne to Jesus. Uh, sometimes for me, it is just a shimmy, shimmy, one cheek at a time change. And I know that's not a pretty picture, but that's what it feels like sometimes. You know, I'm on, I don't get, I'm moving a little bit, and then I'm off. You know, I don't like to give it up. But if we will honestly seek to make that change, I mean, if we will work at this, at trying to surrender that throne to Jesus, this much I, I can promise you. The misplaced ambitions in our lives, whether it's with career or something else, the, 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 the confused priorities of our lives that may be ruling us right now, will, if Jesus gets on that throne, be set right in time. They'll make sense. Our ambitions and priorities will line up in a much healthier way with what's best for us and the people around us. I can tell you that the stubborn addictions that have hold of us will lose their grip when Jesus gets the throne. The age-old wounds that often run us will get progressively healed. The simmering anger or the guilt that maybe has owned us for far too long, will get washed over by his grace and cleansed. The selfish or the parochial worldviews that we confuse with wisdom, this cultural, political, or religious worldviews that are just boxes in which we sort of get contained or manage reality, these things will over time have their sides blown out and we'll find that our vision gets replaced by his charity and his truth as he takes the throne. So here's the invitation today. Take the child's hands. Don't start by by just trying to vacate immediately. um, And let the king take all of it all at once. Don't don't start. If you can, that's great. But most of us, that's not where we're going to, that's not what's going to happen. Here's the invitation. Just take that child's hands, the babe of Bethlehem's hands. Take him in your arms. Consciously set his manger on the throne of your heart today. Do that tomorrow. Get up in the morning, wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, I want you at the center today. Help you. I want you to stay there at the center. Put him there every day. Put him back there whenever you come here or to some church near, near where you live. Uh, keep doing that. And this much I can promise you. That infinite infant. I love that's what C.H. Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher called him. The infinite infant. That infinite infant, once you put him there, is going to grow. And grow. And grow.
to a majestic influence in your life. He's going to grow in you. He's going to become full in you. He's going to shine through you. He's going to move through you till there is no longer any room at all for Herod or for the voices of his court to own you. For, beloved, this is the news of Christmas. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government is going to be upon his shoulders. And he will be called, if you let him take that throne, the wonderful counselor of your life, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Receive this gift and you are going to find that of the increase of his government and of his peace in you and through you, there will be no end. That's not the opinion of some preacher. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.